0: Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Father, we just thank you for his dedication and his love for you, his presence in, with you and in you. And so speak to us today, Lord, and, and give us your heart and your thoughts today to continue forward. We just pray in Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Cal. <coughs> well, good morning, everybody. Um, please bear with me. I'm still trying to kick uh, an eight-day-old sinus infection, so I'm trying to work through that as best I can. But uh, <coughs> we're going to continue um, with our series on Nehemiah because we only got a few more weeks left, and it got interrupted with uh, the Easter season. So we're going to actually be starting uh, today in Nehemiah 8 and talking about what's going on there. I've titled this one, The Power of Hearing and Understanding God's Word. uh, Because uh, scripture talks about hearing the word of God produces that faith. Then there's this other part where we really need to understand what's being said. Because a lot of times we'll hear something, not fully understand it, and then believe something that might not be true. So there's a very, very important part of the understanding of God's word as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, I'm going to wait for them to, to get lined up over here so you guys can see what's going on here. <clears throat> I uh, decided to do a, like a multimedia thing inside the slideshow, and it kind of makes things more complex when you're trying to do it through zoom and all that so that's my fault the technical problem is my fault guys i'll take ownership of that <laughs> how are we doing? there we go the power of hearing understanding god's word looking at nehemiah 8 <clears throat> so when we look at scripture and this is slide number two acts two we're going to jump ahead a little bit is the first account that we have of the holy Spirit really falling on God's people like that we know of as the Holy Spirit. <coughs> we, see, we see repentance, we see re- some sorts of revivals happening in the Old Testament. We don't really have like a scriptural attestation to the name of the Holy Spirit. So Acts 2 is really the first account that we have saying the Holy Spirit has fallen on God's people. So as a result, the apostles spoke with known languages in Jerusalem. And what they were preaching in those known languages was the gospel and what the scriptures said. So we have the account of uh, Peter expounding Joel chapter 2 about pouring out my spirit on all flesh, the sons and daughters will prophesy. Pretty much Joel 2 is completely recited in Acts chapter 2, or Joel 8 or Joel 2, one of those, anyway. Uh, And so then Peter breaks it down, he explains it. And they counted about 5,000 people who believed in Jesus that day? Can you imagine that? Imagine like going to some gathering, talking about Jesus, and then 5,000 people in the audience just come to know the Lord. That would be fantastic. Uh, I, I couldn't fathom that in terms of my own personal experiences, but man, what a thing. And that can really be attributed to two things, and this is slide number three. Number one, God's promise in Isaiah 55:11 where God says that his word will not return void. If his word goes out, it's going to do something. It's not going to fall on the ground and, and be nothing. It's going to fulfill something. And then number two is the Father was calling people to himself, thus fulfilling the Gospel of John, chapter six forty four that says, no one is able to come to me unless the Father, the one having sent me, draws him. And this is one of the first New Testament examples of God drawing his people back to himself. Because we had that 400 years of darkness, 400 years of people trying to figure out God's ways by coming up with human laws. I mean, that's why you have all these extra laws on top of laws on top of laws that aren't actually found in the Old Testament. And here we have this example of God trying to draw his people back after 400 years of prophetic silence, 400 years of, of no word from the Lord and what we see is similar events occurring in the Old Testament when God draws his people back. So God's always tried to draw his people back, and the way he's been trying to do that is through the work of his Spirit. We can see that now more on this side of the cross, see how his Spirit's working, but when we look back at the Old Testament now, we can see how, how God tries to reach and draw his people back through the work of his spirit and through his word being spoken. These two things are, are almost uh, like two sides of the same coin. Is like the work of his spirit in people's hearts and the word being spoken uh, is this way that they bring, God brings people back to himself. So today we're going to look at one of these examples in Nehemiah chapter 8. <clears throat> Before we get into 8 though, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to go through basically a rundown of the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. So we have, we have this developing context uh, for when this happens. Uh, so starting in chapter one, uh, we have Nehemiah asking for a report in Jerusalem from the people that came to visit and then a huge prayer that he has to the Lord about the sins of his people, about needing to repent, and then for God to open a way for his people to be taken care of. Chapter two leads us into the king's favor. So Artaxerxes's favor on Nehemiah. We see that reflected. Nehemiah gives a plan. He says, this is what it'll take. This is what I need. These are the letters from the governors. I need this permission from the forest keeper. And then he goes to the area and he does a reconnaissance and he starts facing opposition from the three guys. And then in chapter three, he starts building the wall. They start putting this wall together. Chapter 4, his opposition begins to ridicule him. They try to oppose him more. Uh, those op- opponents, uh, Sanballat, um, Tobiah, Tobiah, and some other guy, they plan violence against Nehemiah, and it gets thwarted. And so Nehemiah gets tipped off to this, and so he starts arming the builders. So they all have, like, swords on their side as they're, they're building and they also take shifts where some of them are building and others are standing guard to keep a lookout to see if any foes are coming. And then they would shift back and forth until this wall gets built. <clears throat> Probably do a whole side note about like how safe an armed citizenship could be. But uh, he does this to make sure that this wall gets built. Chapter 5, he starts looking into basically the business dealings inside of Jerusalem and starts seeing that some of the nobles and some of the more uh, wealthy people are extorting their own people, and so he abolishes what they call usury, this extortion amongst their own people. He exposes and deals with the corruption inside Jerusalem, and then he talks about his, his exemplary living, about how he's stationed as a governor, but he wasn't taking on all the luxuries that the other governors had taken on. He He lived a very sparse life, only what was necessary to fulfill his role to be an example to the rest of the Jerusalem. And then chapter 6 leads us into the opposition attempting to remove Nehemiah. First through false accusations, then they bribed the prophets inside Jerusalem to give false prophecy and give false uh, advice to Nehemiah, which he uh, denies. He shows his resilience and... Through all of that, he's able to complete the wall in just under 60 days. So in 52 days, the wall goes from burnt ruins to completely restored (coughs) because of Nehemiah's diligence to get this done. And then chapter 7, Nehemiah kind of goes back and does a self-assessment just to check out things, like let's check out the census, how many people are here, how can we support them, what's sustainable, all of that. So that leads us up to chapter 8. The wall's been built, the temple's been built, the people are called back, they're settling in, they're in a level of relative safety, now they can start building their spiritual life and routine again. So that's what leads us into Nehemiah 8. And so I'm going to read Nehemiah 8, which is going to be the brunt of most of the slides you see, because I'm a huge fan of God's word being spoken, because sometimes my commentary might just get something wrong. And I want to be able to admit that. But if I read God's word, at least that part's not going to be wrong. (laughs) So anything that I say, I mean, like, I believe the Lord's leading me to it, right? I wouldn't do it if I didn't. I also understand that it goes through my understanding. My understanding is flawed. Um, But a solid presentation of God's word to give us context, to give us an understanding of what's being said, It's very important, and that's why I do these big chunks of passages uh, when I preach. So starting Nehemiah 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. That's like six hours. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood <coughs> on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood uh, Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maesiah. And on his left were Peraiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashum, Hashba, let me get this one down here, Hashbadaniah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Now if you see that really, thank you, thank you, man that was a stumble. I'm guessing if you say that fast five times, you could probably pass it off as speaking in tongues. (laughs) Excuse me. So Ezra opened the book, man Ezra, That's a simple name compared to all that, right? He opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Uh, if you go to some liturgical churches, you'll see this. When they go to the reading of the scriptures, everybody will stand up. And this is kind of a part of where that comes from. There's this, in, in that tradition, there's a reverence for standing when the word is spoken. I'm not saying it's, it's universal and that that's something that we should start doing. If you see that in another church realize that there is a biblical premise for it so it's not just this odd observation right so he opens the book all the people stand up ezra praised the lord to the great god and all the people lifted their hands and responded amen amen then they bowed down and worshiped the lord with their faces to the ground the levites jeshua bani sherebiah yamin yakub akub Shabbathiah, Hodiah, Hodiah, sorry, Maasiah, Kelte, Kelite, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Can we have somebody close the door there? I know that there's like sound feedback that happens whenever. Thank you. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength we heard that in some songs before? The joy of the Lord is your strength? There it is. Some people wonder about the biblical origins of ly- lyrics and Bible songs. Well, here's one. The joy of the Lord is our strength, right out of Nehemiah. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is a holy day. Do not grieve. And all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Which we'll get into in a little bit. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, this is known as the the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, that they should proclaim his word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back the branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and they brought back the branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this. So they hadn't observed the festival of booths since the days of Joshua. So we're saying we don't have a celebration of the tent of booths from most of the kings until through the exile until now. That's what it seems to be saying there. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So that's chapter 8. I know there's a the long piece. That's the part that we're not getting wrong. right? So I, I, I want that context, that you guys have this idea of what's going on in this narrative, what's going on when we start breaking this down. So slide 27 gives us our first point. The public reading of God's word. (coughs) said God has revealed time and again the importance of knowing his word. We see it in Deuteronomy 6, um, which is known as the Great Shema. It talks about, hey, you need to talk about my law. You need to teach it to your kids. Even put it on headbands and nail it on your doorposts because the law is important. Make it so common make it a daily conversational thing that it that knowing god's law and talking about god's law is just such a normal thing just that it becomes so much a part of your thinking process then in Joshua 1:8 he's instructed to meditate on the law day and night and to be careful to do what it says and then you know if for those of you that might give more weight to the new testament than the old testament Hebrews 4:12 says that the word of god is sharper than any two-edged sword that's able to cut through bone and marrow and revealing even the spiritual stuff. So God's Word being read and being publicly read is basically pounded into Scripture over and over and over. Like You've got to know God's law. You've got to know God's Word. There's no other way around it. It's one thing to be part of a believing community. It's another thing to take ownership of you personally knowing God's Word. And that's what's important here, is this public reading. This is the first time most of these people have even come close to hearing God's word spoken, which at that time is the Pentateuch, right, the first five books. It's the first time. And they're hearing it a thousand years later going, I mean, they were weeping because they'd never heard this before. And it's what's it doing? It's revealing how far off the mark they were from God. Very important to have a reading of God's word, to have a public reading of God's word. So this is slide 28. So what does that mean for us? We've got a few things that we can look at here for application. We're to have a public reading of Scripture. Like, you know, like in, in addition to giving you guys context, I just gave you a public reading of Scripture, right here, right? It's important. And because that's important, that's something I think we should do. And, and I make an effort to do that, to be, to be faithful to this, to be honest with this. Second, it's important to have personal scripture reading time. You know, that's what Deuteronomy 6 is about. When you sit down and eat meals, talk about the law. Talk about God's word. Whenever you have Bible studies, talk about God's word. Whenever you're sitting down with your family, talk about God's word. We, we try to set up a routine uh, right now with El- Elora, because she'll be five in September, where before she goes to bed, we read her from a children's Bible. We do, I call them Bible tales, because a lot of times whenever they watch cartoons, they hear stories, and they associate that with fiction. So I call it a Bible tale, just to kind of break that association. But they're, they're accounts of the Bible that are written so children can read it. So we, we sit down, and we'll read a Bible tale. It starts from Genesis, and it works all the way through Revelation. Actually, last night... We were on the Revelation. I pulled over the bookmark and Allie's like, I don't want to know the title. I just want you to read it to me. Okay. And I get ready to read it. You know, mind you, I'm sinus infection, right? My voice isn't really the clearest. She goes, Daddy, can you sing it to me? <laughs> it's, like, it's like a five-page story. <laughs> so here I am trying to put like a little cadence to what I'm reading in this Bible tale so that I can sing her a Bible tale. You know what? If she's getting exposure to it, I will totally make a fool of myself and sing a Bible tale to my daughter because that's what she wanted and that's important to her and what's important to me is that she gets exposure to what this is, right? So, that family time of reading scripture. Um, Shannon, whenever she's uh, having Ellie do lessons throughout the day, one of the things that she tries to do is to do like Bible memory verses. So I think she's up to like more Bible verses right now. And they're little simple ones like, like, do not be afraid because God is with me. You know, like little things like that, but starting, getting her exposed to it, right? So that that's a part of the normal in our family. Like, I believe that's a part of fulfilling that Deuteronomy 6 mandate, this reading of God's word. (coughs) So yeah, so public reading of scripture, personal reading of scripture, yeah, what we call a devotional time, right? family reading of scripture and if we get together for bible studies for goodness sake let's try to study the bible you know like I know it's very popular to read books about the bible let's not neglect actual reading of the bible itself because that's that's where the true source is you know so that's my exhortation Uh, slide 29 will lead us to the next point the Israelites needed teachers to help them understand Uh, uh, I'll, I'll recite one of the verses here So the Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, the Levites here, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. Now, mind you, I briefly mentioned this. Moses traditionally penned the Pentateuch in about 1400 B.C. We're looking at about 400 BC when this was taking place. So we're talking about a thousand years between Moses writing it down to Ezra reading it publicly. Okay, what's the, is the next slide the one? Okay, so it's a thousand years, next one. I've got an audio clip. Oh. Yeah, the audio clip. I thought it was right in here. It Should be about 33. Okay. I want you guys to listen to this. And let me know what your reaction is. And you can mute me for this, Jerry, so. Feather. ye to the all right. What do you guys think? What is that? Okay, so I got Hebrew, I got Old English. Anything else? It's not Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's not Hebrew. Okay. Any other thoughts, guesses? Okay, uh, that is old English. That was the English that was spoken a thousand years ago. So yeah, that's English. You'd think that's somebody speaking in tongues, right? So let me ask you this: When Moses wrote in 1400 B.C., and they're reading this in 400 B.C. Yeah. Okay. They want to. Hit, you guys already playing it again? No, I have, I just, I've, I've heard it, heard it spoken, I <coughs> am familiar oh, with it. Yeah. Go ahead, Catherine. So. Oh, have mercy on and he here. It's hard enough. This <laughs> Or ne die Juan leak and laugh, Suleus to die. And for you, Fusu regular does swaswa for you, Vaturum Giltendum. And ne elád lad fools on costum a car use of a So All right, so any guess on what this person's saying? So, so this is the Lord's Prayer. Okay. So let me paint that context a little bit more. How would you guys fare reading the scriptures like that for six hours? I and mean, then you kind of have my experience in the Czech Republic, but that's a other thing. <laughs> They'd have these huge elder meetings for four hours. And sometimes the translator would get tired uh-huh. and then they'd wonder why I would like fall asleep in the meetings you know, because I'm like, oh, I have a clue what's going on. Okay, so that is the Israelites' experience when they're reading this. That's why the Levites me- needed to make clear to them what was being said. That's why they needed to make sure that people understood what was being said because we heard our linguistic difference of a thousand years. Imagine them. And then Hebrew is a lot more primitive than English, so that's a whole other thing, right? So that's our sample of what's going through there. That's why it's important to have people who are skilled in the scripture to be able to bring out those deeper understandings. It's important to know it, to know the insides and outs of what's being said. It's also important to have those trusted teachers to be able to bring out those, some of those deeper meanings. <laughs> so, for us, I mean, like, really, like, there's literally, well, pretty close to literally 2,000 years of separation between the time that just the New Testament was written and what we're reading now. And many of the things that were common knowledge back then, like, we're totally lost to the depths of... Like, there's some, some parts that, that, that everybody in that audience understood we will never understand. We can make a guess, but we'll never understand. But those that we can, you know, Scripture talks about um, the scribes. I don't know the Bible verses. I think it's in Matthew. But, but the scribes who follow God will come into God's community and bring from their treasures old and new. It's that depth of knowledge that a deep study brings out. And that's important to, to have a the, uh, the solid, deep understanding of God's Scripture. So there's always going to be a need for teachers in the church to make clear the words of Scripture. I mean, I could have just as easily plopped up here with with my Greek New Testament and just started reading off of the page and you probably would have had the same reaction as this, except like, that's coming out of Todd's mouth? You know, it's like, what? What? So there's this importance, one, of God's Word being spoken and two, God's Word being explained and broken down to make the understanding clear. So there's always a need for those teachers to make things clear. And here, the context is the Levites. In the church today, it's typically the teachers. And so that'll lead us on to our our last point here, that God's word convicts, right? We, We cited that passage in Isaiah 55, my word will never return void. One of the main purposes of God's word, in addition to instructing, is convicting. And it's always safe to make this little caveat in speaking. There's a very big difference, even though it looks the same, between conviction of sin and condemnation of sin. Because conviction is designed to prick the heart, so to speak, and to turn people back to God, toward repentance, away from sin. Condemnation is basically the eradication of hope of anything. And that's why Scripture talks, you know, in Romans 8, like there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no finality, there's no lack of forgiveness for people in Christ Jesus. That's what condemnation is, is you're, you're condemned, that's it. There's no overturning it. Conviction is a tool that the Holy Spirit uses to keep us on the path to keep us close to God, and when we when we err, it's almost like the safety bumpers on the in the bowling ring, right? So it keeps the ball on the lane. That's that conviction. It's like, oh, oh, nope, something's just not right, and bring it back. So God's word brings conviction, and we see that. This is slide 33. If uh, if uh, you're following along, Second Kings 22 talks. You know, has an example of this conviction where. Josiah, right? <laughs> he tears the robes when he first hears the law because the law was probably tucked away in a, in a, in a crevice in a wall in, in the temple because his, his dad Manasseh didn't want to have anything to do with it. And Josiah hears this and he tears his robes and he just calls the whole country to repentance. It's, it's the last known revival of, of repentance in the Old Testament during the king period before the exile happens. So Josiah Hears these words as a king. I mean, he's probably like 25 at the time. Hears these words and calls for repentance, because it brought that conviction. Like they, they read the law of God and it talks about what what God's standard is and what God's prescribed practices are, and you see how far off the mark they'd gone, and you know, like trying to bring it back before before it's it's un, an unstoppable path of destruction. And then we have Acts. Chapter 2 again where Peter, Peter preaches mostly out of Joel and then people are convicted of their sin. Their response is what? What must we do to be saved? Because he's preaching and all of a sudden their hearts are being exposed for the parts that are not following God even though they're keeping all the rituals. <clears throat> and then uh, right out of Nehemiah uh, it says that for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. See what was going on is like Ezra, they planned this. Ezra got up, Nehemiah, everybody got up to do this public reading of the law right on the crest of the festival of booths, right? I mean, that's what it's talking about because they haven't had a festival of booths in almost a thousand years either. That's so what they're saying, this is a festival of booths, reading of the law. And the festival times are supposed to be those happy times. You eat the sweet meats, right? And you and you enjoy the wine and you eat the good food. And and then you move into these these feasts and fasts, right? But this was a feast time, and they're hearing the law for the first time in a thousand years, and they're all weeping because it's exposing their sinfulness. And that wasn't the point of reading the law. I mean, like, really, it wasn't. The point was God's drawn his people back to Jerusalem. Yay! We built the temple. Yay! We built the wall. Yay! Let's celebrate! Read the law! Oh my gosh. I mean, like, that's... this build! Let's build! And then all of a sudden, they're like, people are falling apart because they're their sins are being exposed in their own hearts. And they're like, that's not the purpose. Like, there'll be a time for repentance. Like, Yom Kippur, there's a time for that, right? This is a time for rejoicing. But the reading of God's word just naturally brought this conviction to people. And that's what God's word does, is it brings that conviction. And one, an example in history is that in April 1739, and this is slide 34, Catherine. John Wesley, most of you guys know John Wesley, right? One of the guys of the first Great Awakening. Methodists, Wesleyan Church. He went to Kingswood, Bristol. This is in England, (coughs) where his friend, George Whitfield, another famous uh, Great Awakening preacher, had begun to work among the poor miners. And and the account is, with wonder, John Wesley witnessed huge crowds of dirty, ragged people, some are unwashed from the mines, you know, you're in there digging coal mines, coal dust everywhere. You just come out just black with soot, right? And, and they, they come out and hear these, these open-air preachers and they're hearing the word of God and it says that their tears were making white channels down their grimy faces because of that conviction of God's word being preached publicly. And that, that is part of what's known as the Welsh Revival you know, that, leads, that goes from the end of the 1800s and into the, the 1900s. So, God's Word brings conviction. And and slide 36, like, so what's for us in this? (laughs) Regular exposure to God's Word, first and foremost, keeps us mindful of His parameters. When we read God's Word, you can read Galatians every year, and every year you can see where you missed the mark. I mean, like, and Galatians is a pretty straightforward, simple book. I think there's maybe five chapters in it. I mean, like, you could read Colossians, right? You could take one of the small books of the New Testament and really build a, a vibrant life of faith around it. And by God's grace, we've got 66 books that, that just really spells out what God's heart is. And so this regular reading, if we follow this Deuteronomy 6 pattern, pattern—that we keep this before us, we constantly read it, we talk about it amongst each other, we read it to our families... God's word just becomes this, this parameter of life. And then God's word reminds us of what's pleasing to him. That It's not about just me feeling good, right? Like I don't just go to scripture to get emotional support. I go to scripture to get the life of God, right? The heart of God that, that pours into me and, and gives me things that I can do actions I can take, thought patterns I can adopt for a living, thriving life where God is at the center of it. And then finally, God's word keeps our hearts tender toward that conviction of sin. And that's what we saw here in Joel in, uh, Nehemiah 8 is that they read the scripture and their hearts were convicted. They, for the first time, they were being told, you know all that stuff you're dealing with the pigs? That's pretty wrong. And all that stuff that you're doing with like the non-Jewish groups and the business partners you're getting into and the swindling of your own countrymen, yeah, that's not God's heart, right? And so they're all being convicted <coughs> because God's saying, this is it. These are the parameters of holiness. These are the parameters of abundant life in me. When you venture outside of that, you start losing the benefits of that. And they've had a thousand years of that deterioration. Now, for the first time, they're hearing it again. And they're clamoring to get back in there. (coughs) Excuse me. So in conclusion, Nehemiah 8 has told us some important things about the power of reading God's word and the power of understanding God's word, uh, mostly through teachers and, and Levites. So we're to devote ourselves and our families to the reading of Scripture. We gotta know what the Scripture says. There's no other way around it. Two, we have to have trusted teachers to help us understand. If you find a teacher that you trust that's been vetted out, hold on to them. Because you know even James says, Let not many be teachers because they're held to a higher standard. You know, like not everybody can teach and not everybody can teach well. So if you Find good teachers like hold on to them because they're going to bring these depths of scripture to knowledge that's really really going to help you in your understanding, and it'll enhance your own scripture reading as well, and then finally, keep our hearts tender toward God so that we can remain responsive toward that conviction. you know whenever something goes wrong with me like right now like things are are pretty well spiritually and I, I can say that. And I'm not going to be superstitious and say, oh no, I said that, now the devil's going to come. Forget it. Right? I'm not superstitious like that. Good times come, hard times come, trials of faith happen, and scripture says those that endure to the end will be saved. That's all I'm going to say about that. I'm not going to blame the devil for anything. <laughs> I want to make sure that I keep myself on the up and up with God no matter what. So we keep our hearts tender toward this conviction. Like Even now, like whenever... Like if, if Shannon and I get into some sort of a disagreement, like there are times where like I can't even sleep well at night until I resolve that. And I want that. I want that uneasiness to, to let me know like, you no, know, I got to get back on path here. I need to make peace with my wife because that's important. I don't want to be like so boneheaded that I, I just continue on a path out of pride or whatever because that's not going to suit our family well like to keep that tenderness, responsiveness, you know, so that we can go to sleep at night, so that we can live in that peace that God offers us. Like he talks about in Psalm 23, you know, like like laying down in green pastures by like a, a, a still running water. Like that's, that's where our hearts should be in terms of our relational aspect and we should fight to maintain that as much as we can. So in all of that, you know, that's our conclusion. So, for those of the, you that are listening, maybe on the podcast, maybe on Zoom, this is all foreign to you and, and you really don't know what this whole Jesus thing is about. And Anytime you hear a sermon, you're hearing these weird words that don't have any meaning like sin, conviction, condemnation, abhorrence. This is all it comes down to. Is that God created a way for us to thrive. And, and and the way we thrive is to be in a right relationship with Him. Just like we could be in a right relationship with our spouse, a right relationship with our parents, with our siblings. God wants this interactive relationship with Him. And whenever we go off and we adopt a selfish lifestyle that doesn't respect Him, that doesn't honor Him, we break that relationship. And, and we've all broken it. We're all born into that broken relationship and we needed somebody to bring that peace back into the relationship, to, to restore that relationship. And that's what Jesus did. Like we celebrated Easter last weekend. That's because Jesus came and he lived the perfect life in right relationship with the Father and then gave himself up to cover our chasm where we could never get back to God. He made that bridge possible through his sacrifice. And he came back to life after he died to a full union with God the Father. And now he offers that same union to every one of us if only we would accept it. And so if this is pulling on you, forget the the Bible talk, forget the weird language that sometimes we use in churches. If you want... To walk right with God, then you have to go through Jesus. And if you want that, you can just repeat after me Jesus, I want to know, I want to experience this life in a relationship with God. I want to experience this, this abundant, this peaceful life that this man is talking about. Will you come to me and show me what needs to happen? I don't understand all of these church words. I don't understand a lot of the Bible. But will you come and show me? I'm willing to open my mind and my heart to hear from you. Amen. And that's it. If you said that, then wait for Jesus to speak to you. Um, Also, if, if you want more information, you can talk to a trusted Christian friend if you know one. If you don't, you can contact our church at info at And one of our ministers will be glad to get back with you. Once again, that's info at tgpshicago.org. And uh, we hope to hear from you. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, thank you for the grace to get me through this sermon in the midst of a sinus issue uh, and your goodness for that, Father. And so, Lord, I pray that the words have gone out would bear great fruit Lord, for your glory and your honor, and the Holy Spirit you would use everything this morning for your purposes. May you be blessed and glorified in our lives. Amen. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you were blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the gathering place financially, I encourage you. To use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org, The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.